from the heart of our nation's capital, here's Family Research Council President Tony Perkins. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to Washington Watch. Coming up. Today, our nation has achieved a medical miracle. We have delivered a safe and effective vaccine in just nine months. That was President Donald Trump earlier this month announcing the rollout of the coronavirus vaccine. Now, parallel to the vaccine's release are lots of questions regarding the ethics of the vaccine and its uh, effectiveness. Was fetal tissue used in the creation of the vaccine? Is it safe? Will it work? And will it be mandated? Those are just a few of the questions that I plan on addressing in this special edition of Washington Watch. So glad to have you with us. The website, TonyPerkins.com. If you're on Twitter or Parler, it is at T. Perkins. All right, on today's program, uh, we're going to do something uh, we don't do very often, and that is just focus on one issue, and I'm going to have one guest, and that's all we're going to talk about. We're going to dissect the coronavirus vaccine. Now, President Trump and Operation Warp Speed have been integral in the creation of a vaccine. But what else do we need to know? Joining me now to get into all of this information, how the vaccine came to be, what's in it, where it's going to take us, is Dr. David Prentice, Vice President and Research Director for the Charlotte Lozier Institute. He is also an adjunct professor of molecular genetics at the John Paul II Institute and the Catholic University of America, which I think gives him some firm ground to speak from. On top of that, uh, Dr. Prentice is advisory board member of the Midwest Stem Cell Therapy Center, and uh, he had a hand in actually creating that entity. Uh, we uh, here at the Family Research Council know him quite well because he worked here for over 10 years at the Family Research Council as a senior fellow for life sciences. And prior to that, he was a professor at Indiana State University. Dr. Prentice, welcome to Washington Watch. Thanks, Tony. Good to be with you. Okay. We're going to jump right into this. Uh, You heard at the top of the program, the president said, we created this virus in, or this vaccine rather, for the virus in nine months. How unique is that? Uh, This is unheard of, Tony. It's nine months compressing this production cycle together that normally would take about nine years. But they didn't cut any corners getting there. That's the amazing thing about this. They really pushed hard. President Trump, President Pence, he this ahead at an unheard of speed and having success. So you say they, they didn't cut corners. That's what's on the, I think, the top of everyone's mind here is that, okay, we took this process from nine years down to, you know, nine months how they do it so quickly? Okay. So there, there are about three ways that really brought this to success. Number one, there's some new technology involved. There used to be just one way to make a vaccine against the virus. There are five now. And all of the warp speed vaccine projects used new technology that lent itself to moving ahead very rapidly. The second thing they did was they overlapped some stages of clinical trials. Usually it's a very linear process, and you wait until all the results are in, analyze them, and then you go on to the next stage. Well, they they started stage two before they finished stage one. They started stage three before they finished stage two. Not cutting any corners in terms of making sure everything was safe and effective, but that brings us then to the third part. The government, the federal government, under President Trump's leadership, went ahead and monetized a number of these studies so that these companies could go ahead and start actually producing the final vaccine product before they ever knew if it was going to work, before they'd finished any of these trials. So they could just move ahead very quickly so that now, at this point when we're looking at seeing now two vaccines approved, they've already got millions of doses ready and they continue to pump out millions more every month. So that that last part is really the government assumed the risk of this vaccine. If, if it if it wor- didn't work, they had put this money out uh, for all of these doses of the vaccine, which would have been lost, but they took the risk 
This is kind of what happens, I guess, when you have a businessman running the government and, and not a politician <laughs> yeah. who's willing to take those risks knowing what the reward is, and that is Americans being vaccinated uh, very quickly. Exactly. I mean, you, politicians tend to be risk-averse, and, and pharmaceutical companies tend to be risk-averse. And they were not going to cut their losses in this case because – the federal government already indemnified them. They were able to move ahead at this very rapid pace and successfully bring it to the American people. Okay, so Dr. Prentice, I want to go back to this new technology uh, because this is what has a lot of people focused. Because and, and, and you're the scientist, I'm not, uh, but I do know how to read, and so I've been reading up on, on this, and I've heard from a lot of people who have some concerns. Because normally when a vaccine is created by taking the virus, a dead portion of the virus or almost dead portion of the virus, and you make the vaccine and you inoculate someone, their body then builds up this immunity. Different technology. Explain that technology. Right. So the, the old traditional way, as you've described there, is you take the virus and, and let's make sure people understand viruses have to grow inside cells. And so you have to have a dish of cells. You put the virus in there. The cells grow lots and lots of virus. You pop those cells open, get the virus out, and you kill it or weaken it at least. Uh, and what goes into my arm is whole virus. My immune system looks at that, looks at that sort of whole virus image on the wanted virus poster. All of these new technologies pretty much focus on just part of the virus, what would be the equivalent of the face on the wanted poster. And let's look first at the one for the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccines, which have now been approved. They're what are called mRNA vaccines. mRNA, what's that? Well, it's a little recipe for a protein. In our cells, normally, we've got that entire recipe book, the DNA genome. But if you want to make a particular protein, you don't copy the whole DNA, you copy one little section, and it becomes this mRNA molecule. Again, it's a little recipe for a particular protein. Well, what the companies did was they made the recipe for what's called the spike protein. If your listeners have seen all those images they keep showing of the coronavirus, you see all those little knobs out on the surface, that's the spike protein. It's what the virus uses to bind to our cells and infect it. But it, again, is going to be the most recognizable portion of that virus for our immune system to look at and attack. And so this little mRNA recipe actually was designed on computer. You don't need any cells at all to produce the mRNA vaccine. As soon as the genome structure of the virus was out there on the Internet, the companies Pfizer and Moderna, as well as a number of other companies, just sort of copied that sequence of letters down on their computer, manipulated a little bit to maybe make this recipe last a little longer, put it inside what amounts to a little oil droplets, and that's how the vaccine is. The recipe inside this little drop, no cells involved at all in its design or production. The recipe gets into our cells, and our cell machinery makes that spike protein and shows it then to our immune system, and we get the antibodies made. The other technologies, the new techniques are are very similar in ways. One uses a DNA piece of recipe instead of an RNA, but very similar. Another one, they actually make the spike protein in the lab, Now, you do have to have various types of cells to do that. You give the recipe to those cells in the lab. They make the spike protein, and it's that protein that you inject in. But, again, not the whole virus. And so it's quicker and easier to make that spike protein and just show it to the immune system. And then the final variant is you take the little recipe, but you encompass it in like a a mail carrier, a virus carrier, that does have to be grown in cells. And then it's a harmless virus, so it delivers 
the little recipe to our cells where it makes the spike protein. But all of these newer molecular techniques are just so much quicker than having to grow a lot of cells, grow a lot of virus, inactivate or kill the virus, and so on. So being that this is new technology, is there a risk? Are there unknowns with this technology? I, I, I don't think you're ever going to get away from every particular risk. I mean, there are risks with the old technology, too. But you know, even though it's just now come to the fore, they've been researching this for a couple of decades so far. And they've done a lot of lab experiments, even some clinical trials previously with different types of vaccines, not against the, the COVID-19 uh, disease. You always wonder about what's going to happen, but that's why you do these safety clinical trials to make sure that you've got all of the problems worked out before you ever give it to the general population, before you uh, decide on what dose might be the best dose. You look at safety first. I mean, that is the paramount criteria that you start with. And then you work through these clinical trials to find out the right dose and use, let's face it, they use between 30 and 44,000 people, which is about 10 times as many as the normal phase three clinical trial, because you're looking for any sort of minor reaction mm-hmm. as a heads up to know if this is going to be safe and if it would work. Do you think that the vaccine, the two that have been approved, do you think they are safe? I do think they're safe. I've looked at that data, looked at the data they presented to the FDA, not just from this phase three trial, but the phase one and phase two trials. They look safe and they look very effective. And I would not be hesitant to take either one of them. Okay, uh, we're, we're almost up against the break, and we're going to come back because there's several things I still want to talk about. I want to talk about this recipe uh, that is given to the cells. Does this alter our makeup? Does, this, does it alter DNA? Does it, uh, does it do something beyond just creating a little recipe for them to create an antibody or a, a resistance to this uh, virus? And then I, I want to talk about the the ethics of this. You know, this is where you and I spent a lot of time when you were at the Family Research Council, embryonic stem cell research. Uh, I want to talk about what was used in the testing and the creation of these uh, viruses. And and then we're going to talk about whether or not this is going to be mandated and how we should respond to that. Uh, Dr. David Prentice, my guest, you're listening to Washington Watch. We're going to come back and we're going to answer those questions, or maybe not we. Dr. Prentice is going to answer those questions and uh, and more here on this edition of Washington Watch. I encourage you to check out the website, TonyPerkins.com. Lots of resources there for you on this. Uh, this is an important topic. A lot of people asking questions about it, and I want to try to help you answer those questions. So don't go away. We're coming back with more Washington Watch right after this. Hey, Hannah. What's going on? Why so gloomy? Well, I'm a little disappointed. I had a lot planned to do during the stay-at-home time, and I just didn't do it. Oh, yeah? What did you have planned that you didn't get to do? Well, I was actually hoping I would finally be able to get time to do a regular Bible reading routine, and I started a couple of times. I just didn't stick with it. Don't be too down on yourself. Starting a new routine can be hard, but one way to help is to join in with others and to have a good game plan. I think I have a good solution for you. Oh, yeah? Tony Perkins and FRC are doing a two-year study in the Word. They have it all mapped out. When did they start? I I would be so far behind. Oh, that's not a problem. You can literally jump in any time. There's a daily reading just a couple of chapters a day with questions to help you think about what you're reading. Nice. Where can I find this? 
Go to frc.org slash Bible, and you can get started. Where's that again? frc.org slash Bible. Got it. Checking it out now. In a recent poll, it was revealed that only 6% of Americans hold a biblical worldview. This research also indicated that Christianity's teachings on abortion, marriage, and homosexuality are not only misunderstood, but seen as dangerous and subversive. In response to this trend, Family Research Council has released a new set of resources in our Biblical Worldview series. In addition to our full publications, which cover the topics of Christian political engagement, abortion, religious liberty, and human sexuality, FRC now offers helpful summaries of each publication in this series, as well as accompanying prayer guides to help you and your family pray through these important issues. And finally, our popular biblical principles for political engagement is now available in Spanish. All of these resources are free and available at frc.org worldview. Again, that's frc.org worldview. Masculinity in America has never been under attack the way it is today. We've reached the point where the term itself is considered toxic or offensive to many. The consistent message in our nation is that masculinity by nature is bad and is the root cause of many of the problems plaguing our society. From his experience as a military combat officer and ordained minister of the gospel, Lieutenant General William Boykin has seen and dealt with firsthand the breakdown of leadership in our nation and the lack of godly men living lives of biblical purpose. In his latest book, Man to Man, Rediscovering Masculinity in a Challenging World, he addresses the essential elements of manhood as a provider, an instructor, a defender, a battle buddy, and a chaplain, and explains how to personally develop these traits and pass them to the next generation. Get your copy today of Man to Man, wherever books are sold. Welcome back to Washington Watch. I'm your host, Tony Perkins. So glad that you are with us today, focusing on the issue of the vaccine. Everybody's talking about it. The stock market's reacting to it. Uh, what does it mean? Uh, you know, now we're already vaccinating people. The vice president's been vaccinated. Um, you know, Joe Biden says he's going to get vaccinated. Uh, they're working frontline health care workers being vaccinated. They're moving into the nursing homes. Uh so what does that mean? We've talked about the creation of this, how it was done so quickly. Talks about this new technology. We're going to continue that conversation with Dr. David Prentice. He is the uh, vice president and research director for the Charlotte Lozier Institute, also adjunct professor at uh, the John Paul II Institute and the Catholic University of America. Dr. Prentice, thanks so much for being with us today. Good to be with you, Tony. All right, we're talking about the safety of the issue. Some concern that uh, you, we talked about this in the previous segment about how this creates a little recipe that it hands off to the cells and they start working on that recipe. But does it alter those cells? Does it change the, 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 the DNA structure? And the short answer is no. Uh, that little recipe, like all the other little mRNA recipes for the proteins normally made in our cell, it just gets in the queue. The cell reads it a few times, the little cell machinery that reads the recipe and turns it into protein that then is going to show to the immune system, and then it degrades it. So it doesn't alter our DNA. It doesn't alter our other messenger RNA. There are no lasting changes in the cell at all. You've just added a little additional recipe that our cells will be making that protein for a little while, and then it's gone. So in effect, and please correct me if I'm wrong, you're the scientist, I'm not, as I said earlier, This, the effect of this is no different than the traditional vaccine. It, you're exactly right, and in fact, uh, maybe a little less of an adverse effect. It's still a little too early to tell, but for the traditional vaccine, you get the whole virus. Mm -hmm. And and in some cases, certainly in some of the older versions, it was just weakened. And so there was a chance 
that you could actually get an infection from some of these older vaccines. That's not really a problem nowadays, but with this new technology, there's nothing infectious. Right. You cannot get coronavirus infection from these new technologies. So kind of like when you get the flu shot, you know, many people say, I don't know if I want to get it or not. I always, sometimes I get sick. You, you can actually get a case of the flu from the flu shot, a weakened case, but you can get sick. In this vaccine, there's no virus, so you can't get it. Is that what you're saying? That's exactly right. So in some ways, the, the, the risk of that, the adverse risk, especially with something as uh, what has proven to be so deadly as the coronavirus, that's actually checking the box of one element that is actually safer. But we have seen, you know, some reports of people having adverse reactions to this. What's behind that? Yeah, and that's uh, the typical thing you'd get. The, the, the severe allergic reactions, I, I've seen reports on oh, a very small handful of people uh, we don't really know for sure. There was something either in the vaccine component itself or something else may have been happening to cause that reaction. Uh, they are ready for that. They, as soon as they first saw that, they had the epinephrine ready. They had the Benadryl ready and so on, and the people recovered quickly. The other part of this to think about is people focus on those severe reactions. Those are pretty rare. Mm -hmm. uh, the CDC reports that for all these various other viral vaccines that we've already got, the rate for a severe type of allergic or anaphylactic type of reaction is about one to two per million. And you, know, you think about it, we're going to see a few of those as we already have if you start vaccinating millions of Americans for this type of uh disease. But you know, what's the usual reaction you're going to get? And you know, think about when you get that flu vaccine. Oh, my arm hurts. Oh, it's red. Oh, you know, I'm sore for a while. Maybe I even get a little spike because the immune system starts activating uh, and you get spike in temperature. You feel fatigued for a while. That goes away. And again, they have looked at between 30 and 44,000 people for each of these vaccines to be able to say that, yeah, that's the kind of rate of reaction you get. I mean, there's a risk with everything. Um, there, there's always a risk. When, if you're alive, you're taking a risk. So Life is a risk. It, it, it's going to happen. I, I, in a moment, I'm going to get to the issue of the fetal tissue and whether or not that was included in the uh, the, the testing, the research, the creation of this uh, the, these vaccines. We'll talk about that in a moment. But I, I, I want to go to the process for just a moment. Okay. Once you get vaccinated, how long does it take for this to become effective? Okay, so, and, and let's, let's make sure people understand that so far these vaccines are two shots. You get one shot, and then for Pfizer three weeks later, for Moderna four weeks later, you get the second shot. Usually you'll start to see some immunity build within one week of the first shot. But to get the full effectiveness, which is something else we want to mention, uh, you want to go through the two-shot routine. Uh, efficiency. Uh, some people have said because Pfizer is reporting 95% efficiency, Moderna a little over 94%. Some people have said it can't be. It's too good to be true. Well, the problem there is we've become so used to benchmarking everything against flu and the flu vaccines. And, yeah, flu vaccine in a good year, is only about 40 to 60% effective. But if you look at the CDC's numbers for these other viral vaccines, the COVID-19 vaccine is right in that ballpark. So, for example, measles is about 91 to 95% effective. The new shingles vaccine, Shingrix, 91 to 97% effective. Polio vaccine, 99%. And the list goes on and on. So it's not really surprising that we've got that efficiency. Is, is uh, a part of that, the, the, this new technology, is that contributing to that? I, I don't know if it's that or if it's just a matter of flu virus is okay. so different okay. than most of these other viruses. Uh, but again, 
you know, we've, we've just become so used to benchmarking everything against flu right. that we need to kind of break that habit and look at all of these well, other vaccines. Speaking of breaks, we've got to take one. We're going to come back and talk about the fetal tissue. Was it involved in this vaccine? We're going to talk about it next year with Dr. David Prentice. Don't go away. Since the 1973 Roe v. Wade Supreme Court decision, Congress and many states have taken various actions to stop taxpayer dollars from funding abortions or the abortion industry. As early as 1976, Congressman Henry Hyde led the effort to ban federal funding for abortions. The Federal Hyde Amendment, named after him, established the principle that abortion is not health care and therefore taxpayers should not be forced to fund abortions. Despite these efforts, the abortion industry still receives millions of dollars each year in taxpayer money. In 2019, Planned Parenthood, America's largest abortion provider, received $616.8 million in government funds. Family Research Council's newly updated pro-life map tracks how your state has taken action to stop taxpayer funding of abortions. Go to frc.org slash pro-life maps to see where your state stands in the fight for life. That's frc.org slash pro-life maps. Oh, man. What's wrong? I just missed Washington Watch with Tony Perkins, and our congressman was going to be on the show today. Oh, that's not a big deal. What do you mean? Well, you can always catch the replay of the day's show. How's that? With the Stand Firm app. Yeah? Yep, you can catch that day's program and so much more. You can contact your elected officials on campaigns and policies that are important to you with the Take Action tab. You can listen to Washington Watch with Tony Perkins live and play previous episodes while conveniently going about your day. You can access the Washington Update, informative blogs, tweets, and critical campaigns on the main feed, so you can stay up to date on local and national news. Wow, i definitely use that. How do you find the app? Just visit frc.org slash app and download, or search Stand Firm in the App Store. Okay, that's Stand Firm. Yep, Stand Firm. How do you know all this? Because I'm a SageCon, but that's another story. Huh? This is Washington Watch, and I'm Tony Perkins, your host. So glad that you have joined us. The website, TonyPerkins.com. If you'd like to partner with us to ensure that Washington Watch continues all across this country, we're now on almost 800 stations, 48 states, and uh, we want to keep that and expand so more people, especially going into this next year, will have the benefit of having the truth, a biblical view of the news and what is happening. Uh, we've got some generous partners that have put forth a $1 million challenge match. And between now and December 31st, whatever you contribute will effectively be doubled. So go to TonyPerkins.com and make your donation there. Today, focusing on one issue. Again, rarely do this, but we're focusing on the vaccine. So much attention being p- placed on the coronavirus vaccine. And uh, my guest, Dr. David Prentice, uh, he is at the Lozier Institute, director of research there. Uh, Dr. Prentice, thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you, Tony. I want to play uh, another clip, uh, this from Secretary Alex Azar, prior to Thanksgiving, talking about, uh, in part, the distribution. We expect to have uh, approximately 40 million doses by the end of this year. The product will roll off the production lines uh, tens and tens of millions of doses each month, and we'll vaccinate as we get them and as they're quality controlled and released. All right, so before the break, we were talking about the fact that this comes in two shots. You're going to get the first shot, and then depending on which vaccine, uh, either you know three to four weeks later or five weeks later, um, is it the same exact dose that you get the second time? Yes, you get the same dose, whether it's the Pfizer or Moderna. Uh, you know, the thing is, you need to make sure you get both doses to have the full effectiveness now will you I'm, I'm i'm assuming and i don't but of course i don't want to assume anything that you your doctor or wherever you get the vaccine would give you you would want to get the same vaccine if it's the pfizer you want to get the second shot would be a pfizer as well is that correct that's right it, they they don't know what would happen if you got first one and then the other you want to go back and get the exact same vaccine okay so We've established the fact that you've got to get two shots. It starts to work. 
um, you know, within a week or so, but then you get the second one to give you the full effect. Do we know how long the effects, the protection last? Great question. And the short answer is no, because nobody's ever gotten this vaccine before. But we do have studies where people who had actually gotten COVID-19 back in the spring and recovered, and the studies show that the antibodies that they produced against the actual disease last at least four to six months. So I think we can probably uh, make an analogy there and say, well, your vaccine ought to last at least that long as well. Yeah, I mean, I've, I had the virus back in July, and I tested first um, of September. I had strong antibody, uh, antibodies present. Um, and, of course, they, the CDC is saying safely 90 days, but it could be longer. We, as you said, we just don't know how long uh, this last. So when this begins to, to, to roll out, when, when, when can you get the, vi- the, the vaccine? How, how do we know who's going to get it? How do you get in line to get it? What's going to be this process that the secretary mentioned, the rollout that is now in place? Right. And, and so the people at the front of the queue are going to be healthcare workers because they're dealing with people infected all the time and the very high risk folks. So the folks in nursing homes, the folks that deal with the folks and, and help the folks in nursing homes. After that, it looks like they're lining up uh, first responders. Again, essential workers, places like that, uh, grocery store folks, because think about it. These are essential workers as well, and, and they deserve our thanks as well as the protection of the vaccine. And it'll be a few months before it kind of filters on down. But you know, as the secretary said in that clip, they're pumping out millions and millions of doses every month, again, thanks to the foresight of this Warp Speed program. Yeah, I want to underscore that's a quite remarkable condensing down this time frame into nine months. Uh, I, I certainly do not think the media has given the president and this administration the credit that is due them for delivering a vaccine so quickly. Yeah, it, it is. Uh, it, it's a great feat. It's a unique first-time effort. But, you know, again, they didn't cut any corners in terms of safety. That's all been validated and verified by a number of inside and outside committees looking at this in terms of safety and very effective. So new technology, condensing the whole overlap of the trials, but, you know, the government indemnifying these companies so they can just go full bore. Okay, uh, Dr. Prentice, up against another break, then we're going to come back um, and, and finish out our conversation and still have some questions for you. One, many people asking you know the ethical the ethical nature of this when you consider was was fetal tissue involved in the uh, production or the the testing of this we're going to talk about that also um, you know what about uh, pregnant women uh, should they take the vaccine uh, could this cause infertility could what, what might be some of the side effects of this so we're going to have that conversation with dr. David Prentice here as we talk about the coronavirus vaccine that is rolling out across America, healthcare workers first in line to get it, uh, those vulnerable populations, you know, how do we um, how do we approach this? We're going to be talking about this and conclude our conversation with Dr. David Prentice when we return from this break. So don't go away. We're coming back with more Washington Watch right after this. Get a trusted perspective on the news of the day every day. Listen to Washington Watch with Tony Perkins to get honest and in-depth commentary on what's going on in our nation's capital and around the world. Join Family Research Council President Tony Perkins live every weekday on over 800 radio stations across the country. Or listen to the show when it works for you by visiting TonyPerkins.com. On the show, you'll hear from guests like Ben Carson, Senator Josh Hawley, Representative Vicki Hartzler, Molly Hemingway, Pastor Jack Hibbs, Dana Lash, Sissy Graham Lynch, Pastor John MacArthur, Eric Metaxas, 
Albert Moeller, and more. Tony is joined by leading political figures, pastors, and policy and culture experts who will inspire you to be engaged and informed on the important issues facing America. For a Christian perspective on the news of the day, tune in to Washington Watch with Tony Perkins at TonyPerkins.com. Are you looking to grow closer in your relationship with Jesus Christ and in your knowledge of God's Word? Family Research Council has a three-part series titled, Three Ways to Read the Bible. This series shares helpful ways to be encouraged and directed by God's truth by observing the text of the Bible and applying it to your life. There is no better time than now to get to know God through His Word by looking into the Bible to see what it says about itself, God, and humanity. There's no better time than now to begin devoting time to the Lord and to seek out His meaning for you. This blog series is a great primer on opening your eyes and heart to Him through the Bible amid the toils and troubles of today. Check out this helpful resource and learn how to read the Bible with not just your eyes, but with your heart and mind as well. To learn more, visit frcblog.com slash ways to read. That's frcblog.com slash ways to read. What's on your daily or weekly reading list? Are you looking for honest and informative commentary from fellow believers on the current issues facing our culture? Family Research Council has just the thing. Check out FRC's blog at frcblog.com. The content on our blog is written by our policy experts as well as outside contributors. On our blog, you can read about a wide variety of topics, including religious liberty, life, marriage, family, sexuality, public policy, and the culture. Read up on some of our latest titles like Four Disturbing Trends in Religious Freedom Worldwide, Legitimizing Looting Jeopardizes Liberty for All, The Media Still Doesn't Get It, Conservatives Tend to Vote Conservative, and more. At Family Research Council, our mission is to advance faith, family, and freedom in the culture by helping you live out your faith and to stand for truth. Our blog is here to help you do that. Stay informed and get the resources you need at frcblog.com. City sidewalks, busy sidewalks, dressed in holiday style, in the air. Welcome back to Washington Watch. Doesn't that music just make you feel good? You know, it's just Christmas. That's uh, Dean Martin. I guess I listen to that music. That's uh, that's in my playlist. All right, talking to Dr. David Prentice about the coronavirus vaccine that is rolling out across the United States. Uh, we've covered a lot of these issues, and uh, we're going to try to wrap up. And, and many of the questions that you've sent in, many of the questions that our listeners have uh, asked about. So, Dr. Prentice, thanks so much for uh, for for giving us your entire uh, afternoon here as we work through these uh, many, many questions. And, of course, when I thought about this, about doing a program, um, I, I couldn't think of anybody better to to do this, to address the issues that are of concern to so many Christians across the country. Uh, Dr. Prentice spent a decade about at the Family Research Council. We worked on the fetal tissue research issue, embryonic stem cell research. We worked on those issues. I was a former professor at Indiana University, now at the uh, Charlotte Lozier Institute as um, vice president and research director. And no one, no one, uh, I trust more on these issues than, uh, than Dr. Prentice. So, David, let's... Um, Let's uh, kind of click through the list here. We've got a number of questions still to be answered. Uh, I want to get to the fetal tissue issue uh, in a moment, but I, I want to talk about uh, the vaccine. Can it affect pregnant women and unborn children if they're vaccinated? And the short answer is no. And, and people have been a little worried about that because pregnant women were excluded from the clinical trials. But, Tony, you always exclude pregnant women from clinical trials. But now that the trials have finished, or at least come to the point for the emergency approval for Pfizer and Moderna, OBGYNs are recommending that pregnant women go ahead and get the vaccine. Another question, can it cause infertility? And again, the answer is no. And the problem here is uh, there were a couple of doctors in Europe who found what they thought was similarity between that spike protein that you're going to make antibodies against 
and a protein that's on the placenta, and their supposition was if you made antibodies against the, the virus protein, it would cross-react and cause miscarriage and cause infertility. But it turns out, we did the deep dive on the actual protein structure. There's just no similarity in where the antibodies find, so it's, it's not a concern. Does the vaccine, I mean, the vaccine contains nanotechnology, and some are thinking, well, does this allow the government then to track us? Is something inserted in there that allows those that have been vaccinated to be uh, to be tracked? And I understand people because part of that little recipe is surrounded by what's called a lipid nanoparticle. But that's just a fancy way to say very small oil droplet. Nanotechnology involves something about the size between a protein and a cell which is the size of that oil droplet. But there are no small nano robots or any sort of tracking devices in any of the vaccines. Is there anything that makes this fluorescent or so that a scan would show that there has been a vaccine? And, and that's because people have talked about this uh, bioluminescence from a protein called luciferin. It's what makes fireflies light up. And you use that in some testing in the lab, but that's not a component of any vaccine whatsoever. So I don't have to worry about my tail lighting up. No. All right. Um, now, let me get to the big issue, uh, because this is something, you know, you and I worked on for years when we worked on embryonic stem cell research. And, of course, we've seen this wave, uh, you know, a few years back of the fetal tissue with Planned Parenthood selling those baby body parts. Does this vaccine... Uh, what we, what we've seen so far, in any form or fashion, has fetal tissue been involved? And, and so the short answer is no in terms of that baby body parts and trafficking. What it might contain or might use in some, not most, but some of these vaccines are using what are called fetal cell lines. So literally decades ago, an abortion happened and some scientists took some cells from that baby, put them into the lab dish. They've been growing for decades. Now, that's a long time, long distance away, but you can still track that ethical line back to that abortion. Remember we said the virus has to grow, or even the, the carrier virus or making protein uses cells. There are some of the vaccines that use those fetal cell lines, abortion-derived cell lines, in production of the actual vaccine. If you go down the list, in fact, of just the eight warp speed candidates, the AstraZeneca and the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, it's ongoing use to make their vaccine. The others, like Pfizer, Moderna, don't even use any cells in their production some of the others don't use cells at all, or they use an animal cell. There is another component, though, that people need to be aware of. Some of these companies use those fetal cells in post-production testing. So they made the vaccine, and then they're just testing to see whether it actually works, and they're starting with cells in culture or starting with animals to see if they make antibodies. And in some, not all, but some of those tests, they did use those fetal cell lines. And, you know, for some people, that's not a concern because they're just interested in, am I going to get anything injected into my body that's touched one of those cells or, or even parts of those cells? But some people are concerned about a company even using that test on the side, even indirectly. What we've tried to do at Charlotte Lozier Institute is put all that information out there so everybody can see full transparency whether they did or didn't use those cells in production or in testing or anywhere else in that whole flow. And you can just go to uh, LozierInstitute.org, and we've got a whole landing page set up, what you need to know about the COVID-19 vaccines. Okay, so just so I'm uh, crystal clear on this, so far, we've had two um, vaccines that have been approved for distribution. We had the Pfizer and then the Moderna, right? Right. In those two, 
if someone were to get that vaccine, um, would they be receiving a product that in any form or fashion had been derived from or containing fetal tissue? No, not at all. Those two are made totally in the test tube, in the lab, without use of any cells. All right, so th- those, the ethical issues are, are resolved. Yes, I mean, they did do some testing on the vaccine afterwards. Right. But in terms of the production, in terms of what goes into my arm, no contact whatsoever with a fetal cell line. So, but you did mention that Johnson and Johnson and uh, what was the the second one? The other one is AstraZeneca. Those, those two use those fetal cells in the actual production of the vaccine. It's an ongoing essential part of so, their manufacturing process. And so, you know, the short answer is, you know, maybe you've got some cell protein still in that vaccine, whatever thing. In the production, they are using those fetal cell lines. So if you're going to get vaccinated, how do you uh, determine the company that produced the vaccine that you're going to get? Is that something you acquire, inquire about with your doctor? You have to ask. It, it doesn't look like because they're just starting to roll all these out now, and probably in the coming months, AstraZeneca and Johnson & Johnson will be approved too. So you're going to have to ask your doctor or if you're going to to the local pharmacy and they're giving the shots, you need to ask and you just need to be totally upfront saying, look, tell me who made this vaccine. And again, uh, folks, the Charlotte Lozier Institute, they've been spearheading this. Dr. Prentice and their team have been uh, running point on all of this, and they have that that research, their findings at their website. We've got a link at TonyPerkins.com so you can follow that over. Of course, I think uh, Johnson & Johnson, uh, th- those will probably be approved under the next administration, which would have no uh, qualms about uh, fetal tissue uh, in in anything, unfortunately, but let me we're, before we run out of time. There are those that are saying, "All right, what happens if this is mandated? Is government going to mandate that I get this vaccine, and how should I respond?" And and we don't know the the indications at this point are that it will not be mandated. Uh, I don't think it should be mandated. This should be a choice that people have. And they need to know who made the vaccine and, you know, all the other information about it, which is why we're trying to put all that out for everybody. But, you know, government government should not be telling us about that. Now, we have a certain responsibility if we choose to take or not to take the vaccine to our community, to our family and so on. Right. But that needs to be weighed against a government mandate and telling you, you must do this. That just should not happen. I mean, I, we, there's been so much that's been unprecedented in the way we've responded to this virus. Under uh, no other circumstance have we shut down all of society, locked people in their homes, shut our churches, shuttered our businesses. Um, and, of course, you know, we're reaping the, uh, the, 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 the effects of that. Uh, you know, the economy is faltering. Um, and we have people that are in isolation. Uh, depression is up. Suicide is up. Drug use is up. Um, so I'm, I'm hopeful that maybe going forward, we're not going to set more precedents by mandating this vaccine. But let's talk uh, just for a moment, Dr. Prentice, how long will it take once as this vaccine is rolling out to give us as a society a level of protection that can tamp down the pandemic? It's a little difficult to tell at this point, but let's go back through, you know, we, it's going to be first healthcare workers, high-risk folk, uh, first responders then, other sorts of high-risk or essential workers, and eventually down to run-of-the-mill folks like you and me, that may take six months before we can finally get all the doses and get it out to everybody and get people vaccinated. The hope is that by that point then, you will have enough people 
just doing common sense things like washing their hands, but enough people also vaccinated that we can finally come out of this uh, horrendous sort of quarantine that we've been in and actually come back to, to meeting together to worship and, and actually seeing family members again and so on. So, so it's going to take a while. But you also have running, stage, but you have running parallel to that. You have people who are actually getting the virus, um, yeah. overcoming it and building up the antibodies. And so they become a societal resistance to the spread as well. Right. Right. There's a thing they call herd immunity where you have enough people. I heard about that. <laughs> who have either had the infection, like yourself, or who have had the vaccine, like we hope a lot of people are going to have. And so you develop enough protection within the community. And that's, again, how we ought to think about this in one way, is, is protecting our families, protecting our communities, helping one another to move forward. Uh, into a better future. Yeah. So we're looking at probably June or July before society as a whole returns to, I, I hesitate to say normal, uh, but a return to some form or fashion of normality. I, I, I do think I had this conversation with Dr. Carson um, a couple of months ago as, as a member of the task force asking him, when and if we would return to normal. And he said, I don't think we'll ever return to what we were pre-pandemic. We Society has altered significantly the way we do business, uh, the way we communicate. And, uh, and unfortunately, I think the fear that the media was so eager to uh, to fan the flames of has really changed the way we interact as human beings in America. Yeah, and, and you've mentioned the key problem in all of this is fear yeah. and, and the scaremongers who have amplified the problem, not tamped it down. Right. But, you know, we need to live without fear because we have a great hope. And, and we're looking towards the uh, remembering the arrival of that hope here uh, very soon. That's right. That's right. Uh, you know, we have been given... Not a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of sound mind. And that's, that is our hope and promise in Christ Jesus. And so whatever may come, we can keep our heads about ourselves, take the appropriate actions and steps, but not live in fear. Dr. David Prentice, thanks so much for uh, joining us today. Great to talk with you. Thanks, Tony. God bless. All right, Dr. David Prentice with the Lozier Institute, Vice President over there and Director of Research, uh, as I mentioned, used to be here at the Family Research Council doing a great job. And so I wholeheartedly trust what he has to say, and I encourage you to check out their website at uh, the Lozier Institute. We've got a link at TonyPerkins.com. Share that with your friends. A lot of conversations happening about the vaccine. Just as I'm, I'm encouraging, don't be fearful about the virus, you know, be informed. Don't be fearful about the vaccine and what people are saying. Get the facts for yourself and, and, and put to, to rest some of these myths that are out there. Get the facts. All right, folks, out of time. Thanks so much for joining us. Until next time, I leave you with the encouraging words of the Apostle Paul found in Ephesians 6, where he says, when you've done everything you can do, when you've prayed, prepared, and taken your stand, by all means, keep standing. Washington Watch with Tony Perkins is brought to you by Family Research Council and is entirely listener-supported. Portions of the show discussing candidates are brought to you by Family Research Council Action. For more information on anything you've heard today or to find out how you can partner with us in our ongoing efforts to promote faith, family, and freedom, visit TonyPerkins.com. Also, to leave a comment about Washington Watch, call our watch line at 1-866-372-7234. That's 1-866-372-7234.